In Ecclesiastes, now that is a book, it's found in the middle of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is attributed to Solomon as the primary author. Chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now a Puritan back in the 1600s said, that we should prepare our life in such a way, such a manner, that when we come to die, that all we have to do is die. That we should prepare our life in such a manner that when it comes time to die, that all that is left for us to do is the act of dying. Now this would compare pretty well with what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying here. Uh, We need to think all throughout our life about having a good name. That's an idea that's kind of antiquated at this particular point in American history. In my childhood, this was a big concept. We need to think about preparing for a good death. We need to understand that mourning is a manner of living that prepares us for both death and for life. A proper mourning of the loss of a good person will have a great impact upon our own lives. A proper sorrow over things that would cheapen our lives will cause us to value our name even more. And a proper of learning from this kind of sorrow about the cheapening of life and the mourning of the loss of a good person, God will use in a great way to set us on the path of bringing him honor and glory and allowing us at the time of our death to die with a good name. Now, there's a lot of examples of this in various facets that you can find from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures. In Genesis 48, the almost entire chapter is given over to Jacob. Jacob is dying, and Jacob is blessing all of his sons. Now, when you think of this and you think of who it is that's doing the blessing, Jacob, and you think of the way that he's doing this, you would say this man Jacob 
has learned a great deal in life. You remember his father? There was Isaac and Rebekah, and they had how many sons? Jacob, and who was the other? Who was the firstborn? Who had the birthright? Who had the blessing? How much happiness was there in this house? Rebecca was at odds with Isaac. It looked like Rebecca sided with Jacob. It looked like Isaac sided with Esau. There was a type of fractionalism throughout this family. Isaac had one blessing. By the time Jacob dies, he has 12 blessings. We need to think now, when we come to the end of our life, I'm witnessing people dying over and over again, and as I witness this, what I find is that the people that are the family are trying to be a blessing to the person who's dying. Well, that's very much the way it should be. But why should the dying person just die when, in reality, they can be... What do those children want to hear from their parents when their parents are dying? I love you. I thank you for being a good child. I thank you for all the ways that you enrich my life. I want to pray that God would be great and good to you as he has been great and good to me. That's what Jacob's doing here at the end of his life. Now, when we move into the New Testament, you see Jesus, and he is in the act of dying. And what is he doing? Well, he's being a blessing to his mother. He says to John, behold your mother. He says to Mary, in reference to John, behold your son. And it said, from that day forward, John took Mary into his own home. Here was the dying one. He is thinking about his loved ones to be a blessing to them. When you look at this picture of Jesus, you see he's concerned individually for people. There's a repentant thief. Jesus is dying. He takes time with an unbeliever to bring him into a state of being a believer. You see that Jesus is, now folks, you want to listen to this. You don't want to wait to the end of your life to do this. What Jesus does on the cross, you and I should be doing every day. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, I was over at Johnny Franklin's used cars yesterday trying to secure a car from them because Johnny Franklin called me up a number of years ago. He said, um, you take care of the old folk in your church. I said, yeah, I do. He said, my mom is almost 100 she used to be a member at Tattnall Square Presbyterian Church that's closed. Would you visit her? 
I visit her until she is 102. When she was 101, an aid worker where she was working, where she was living rather, said, she was working, but where she was living, an aid worker spoke to another aid worker and said, why are you talking to that woman? She's senile. That was not a smart thing to say. This dear old lady looked at the woman that made the comment and said, young lady, I'm not senile. And she proceeded to give her things that would indicate that she perfectly well knew what was going on in the world. And she looked at the young lady and she says, I forgive you. That's why I've lived to be over a hundred, because I forgive people and I forgive you. That'll preach. Jesus forgave. We need to be forgiving. Now, when we look at the scriptures about death, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that the last enemy to be abolished is death. Death is seen as an enemy. You should never go through this idea of death is some kind of a blessing to you. That death is a good thing. In the beginning, God, what? Created. God is the creator of life. Satan is the author of death. Death is an enemy it will be the last enemy to be abolished. We properly, as human people, we properly and rightly should see death as an enemy. But as we go through, for the Christian, although death is an enemy, repeatedly we see from Jesus and we see from the apostles the teaching that we are not to fear death. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, speaking of Jesus, the author says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come to those or help those who are being tempted. Here this whole idea of being tempted and being fearful of death is wrapped up with Jesus's death and Jesus's victory over death. And the very specific idea is that Jesus knows how to come to our aid at the time of our death. We should not absent Jesus from our thinking as we know we're in the process of dying. We should be thinking 
He experienced this. He endured this. And he has promised to be with me. He has promised to come to my aid. It is Jesus that even when he was on the cross, it's him that is telling the thief who is dying, giving him aid, giving him comfort, today you will be with me in paradise. So you see Jesus' action very much matching the ideas that we see here in Hebrews chapter 2. He is coming to the aid of those who are suffering or in the very experience and throes of death and telling them truth, telling them reality, telling things to people and renewing in them their hope in God and their belief that there is beyond this life a true reward for those who believe in him. Now Jesus' death, as we look at it, we see that it was a public spectacle. It was a, it was a public execution. Now I want you to see that that is a pretty much um, an oddity. It's still, we still see that within the United States. But what happens here is still also experienced within the United States, and that's the idea that family can be present. But the idea that we see here is that at the time of dying, it's the time for the family to come around. Mary, Jesus' mother, is present. There are many women who had followed Jesus that we're told that were present. We're told that John, the beloved apostle, was present. We're given to believe that Nicodemus, the one who was uh, who had come to Jesus by night that we have John 3.16 from, that he was present, and Joseph of Arimathea was present. And I'm sure there were others that we just, it was not necessary to pass on that information, but they were there. Now, at a public Roman execution, it was illegal, it was not illegal for family and friends to be present. But at the cross, it was against Roman law for there to be given any outward protest of the execution, nor could there be any comfort or condolences given to the condemned. Jesus died, in a real sense, very much alone. But their coming to Jesus' side should serve us as a model, an example, that when our loved ones do pass away as they're moving toward death, as much as it's possible, that we should try to gather around them there at their passing. Now, i just make a couple comments about this. Some of you have lived privileged lives, and in living privileged lives, you've isolated yourself from things that you just don't want to have around. And what ends up happening is when you do this, and it's the time of your death, you may die very much alone. You may wish for other people to be present, but you've kept them at a societal distance. And you need to be very careful about this because the natural thing is for your family and for your close friends to come to your side at this time. Many times in hospice situations, you'll see signs at the door 
where the family member wants, for reasons that I'm not always sure of, not to let anybody in. Um, Pastors are often not let in. This is not what you see in the many different public dyings that are recorded in the scripture. Typically what you see is the friends and the family of faith are there bringing God's comfort. How does God typically speak to people today? He does it through other Christians. And you'll hear a Christian, maybe it's a pastor preaching, maybe it's just someone as a Christian giving Christian advice and counsel from the Bible, but what God's doing when that person is conducting themselves this way is very often he himself is speaking through those people. They have become his own mouthpiece. And so when a person's dying, we need to let Christian people in. I might get a little pushback on that, but I'll stand my ground on that one. Call your pastor. Call your Sunday school teacher. You may be the family member and you may want it your way, but you better make sure you understand what the person that's dying's way is because I see that happening all the time. I see original jurisdiction being taken by the family members and taking that dignity and respect away from the person that's actually dying. We need to be very careful here. For the family and for the dying, I would want you to understand there are aids and dangers in the dying process. When Jesus came to the site of the cross, so Jesus is now there on Gethsemane, Golgotha, and as at Golgotha, and the cross is there. Before they even nail him, someone comes and they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. These were hospice workers, if you will. This was an act of mercy. But Jesus refused that, and positively, what would have occurred in the most minimal sense is, if Jesus would have taken the wine and the myrrh, it would have taken the edge off of the pain of dying. That's where hospice is a great help. Now, negatively, this was then, may I make you sure you understand that it is the same today, the offering of a sedative is an imperfect science. And where one person, a little bit of sedative, would take the edge off of their pain, for somebody else, it may cause their death, or it may render them unconscious. So Jesus um, refused to take this uh, palliative of the wine and the myrrh. Now Jesus' dying was excruciating. In that word excruciating, we have the very word crucify. It's a part of the word excruciating. Jesus' dying was even more so. So Jesus' dying is nothing that we could ever attain to. 
What Jesus experienced in death, no one has ever experienced in a like manner prior to his dying or since his dying. His dying was an innocent person who was meeting the cross. We talk about babies being innocent. Well, no, but Jesus was innocent. Innocent people feel things more exquisitely than hardened people. Jesus felt this torment more extreme than others would. At his death, he was experiencing blasphemy. He was experiencing the miscarriage of justice. He was abandoned by many of his closest friends. Finally, Jesus was derelicted by God himself. He died under a curse. Now, yes, Jesus died to life, but we're told that he died unto sin once for all. And so the idea is that Jesus' death was unlike any other death that has ever taken place. As a result of this, when Christians die to this life, now, I'm, I'm, I know this is hair-splitting, but I'm, not, I'm just trying to be in the obvious sense here. When Christians die to this life, they move into the first phase of what is called eternal life. Now, Pat's mother died last Monday. Okay? So Pat said, when we had gone up to Lake Oconee this Sunday to preach, well, this was my mother's first Sunday in heaven. Well, you know I'm a killjoy. And I said, no, heaven is eternity. There is no Sunday. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You see what happens? When a person dies on Monday, they enter into eternity. They don't enter into a sequence of days of a week any longer. It's the first phase of eternal life. Christians do not face the abandonment of of God for their sin. Rather, Christians receive at their death the reward of all of Jesus' merits and benefits. It all comes to us as it came to Jesus. Now, our catechism... Um, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 37, and in the larger catechism is in the 85 to 90 range, those questions deal with this. So the question is asked in the Shorter Catechism, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at their death? And the answer to the question is this. At their death, believers receive from Christ that they are made perfect in holiness. That they do immediately enter into the presence of the Lord in glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, remain in the grave until the resurrection. Now, in this definition of the benefits, we're told that we are made perfect. 
I want you to think, how can we say that? Well, we know that heaven in the presence of God is a place where there can be no sin. God cannot live in the presence of sin. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, you're going to be with me in paradise. It was to happen then. So that thief that was on that cross was a thief to the time he died, and at the time of his death was immediately made perfect in holiness. Now the other thing that we're told, let me just say that the idea of the catechism is not merely to say what the scriptures say. What the catechism is attempting to do is to correct error. And the Roman Catholics had distorted the nature of Christian dying to incorporate into it purgation. That there would be, after a person died, a purging of that person of their sins. And the scriptures are making us understand that a person is made perfect in righteousness at the time of their death. It's immediate. Jesus said to the thief on the cross today. So we need to understand my, my wife's mother kept asking, how long will it take to get to heaven? <laughs> and she wanted to know if she should wear her shoes. So, uh, so I was dealing with this catechism question, which was a great comfort to Pat's mom. But again, this is an, a refutation of the Roman Catholic distortion of purgatory that can take a long and extended period of time from the time of a person's death to the time of their release from purgatory. No. The word glory and highest heaven and paradise, Jesus' words, are to tell us that there isn't, as it were, degrees in a hierarchy of heaven. Heaven is heaven. When a person enters heaven, they enter heaven. That, again, the Roman Catholics have a hierarchical view where popes are in saints and people of that nature are seen as being in a more special or privileged position. It's not that way. We're all in the presence of the Lord and benefiting from all of his blessings. Now, Jesus shows us this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, it portrays Lazarus as being poor. The rich man is living behind a gate. It says that Lazarus died and he was taken into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man died and he went into what was called Hades. He was in torment in the flame. He saw uh, Lazarus being comforted. He said, please send Lazarus over here to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue because I'm in torment in this place. And Jesus is saying, no, in his life he received evil and now he is being comforted in receiving good. This is what we should expect, that it is going to look like what Jesus spoke of in this parable. One family spoke to me, and they said, I know we're going to heaven, but we won't know each other. He was speaking, the man was speaking of his wife. 
And his wife was agreeing that she wouldn't know her husband. Well, again, what do we see in the scripture? In the transfiguration, it reveals that the people that appeared to Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Can I, if you look at the passage, you come to opinion that Moses and Elijah are completely up to date. They're not living in some world back when they died. They are there to give Jesus comfort in the approach of his agony. And you've got Moses there, and he and Elijah are talking to Jesus directly and personally. We should think that we should be able to talk in heaven to Jesus directly impersonally, just like uh, Moses and Elijah. We see that Peter, James, and John knew it was Moses and Elijah. We should take it probably as obvious that Moses knew who Elijah was and Elijah knew who Moses was, and we should expect that we're going to know each other in heaven in much the same way. So that we should look at this and understand the nature of what heaven and the resurrection will be. A personal life, a progressive life, a life of knowing, Moses and Elijah were serving Jesus directly and personally. We will be serving Jesus in some way, shape, or form directly and personally like they were. Now, Pat and I just walked through her mother's dying. And it took basically three weeks from the time it started to the time it ended. Julia, not Julia, Julia, (laughs) her final days were in her own apartment. Bulk of the time, all three daughters were with her. Many of the children were, grandchildren were there. The sons-in-law were there, nieces and nephews were there, Christian friends were there. Months before we saw this happen, one nurse, being, one daughter being a, an, an LPN2 and the other having been an RN in the past, we discussed hospice care. And we discussed primarily the palliative medicines that are being used. I told them of multiple experiences that I've had, not only here, but in other churches, where as soon as a person comes into palliative care, the first thing that's happened is they're attached to something to bring the sedative into their body. And if the person moans or gives any sign of being in discomfort, they get more sedative. Well, I said to my sisters-in-law, If you do this, your mom's not going to be able to talk to you. If you do this too quickly, you're not going to be able to know that you're communicating with your mom. So we were prepared, and we used them sparingly. If anything, we didn't use them enough, and not using them enough in this case caused the heart to race and to be a weakened blood pressure. So as we gave them a little more, it was a positive result, and her blood pressure came up. So the positive and the negative were tried to be monitored. 
you know, some people don't like this, but Julia had her eyes open and was in some way talking within hours of her dying. Now, she was slipping away for three weeks, but we were talking with her. She was talking with us. The 23rd Psalm was repeated in small groups with her. Uh, we would say it out loud together, the Beatitudes, John 14, 1 through 6. I read to her. My own son read to her. That was quite a privilege for me. I saw my nephew reading scripture to her. I saw my niece reading scripture to her. Various ones, me excluded, were singing to her. (laughs) But there was a whole lot of that going on. Questions about dying were being asked and were being answered and being discussed. Um, While Pat's sister Ruth was singing, Julia stopped breathing in that kind of a context. We stopped and prayed together. Now I want you to think if you're almost 93 and you know you're dying and you see your daughters with Christian husbands and they're praying, they're reading scripture, they're comforting one another, they're being a comfort to you. Other people are coming in doing the same thing. They're singing God's praise. Um, If you were 93 almost, wouldn't that kind of be the way you would hope it would look? You can work on this, but you've got to talk. You may be a family member. You can ask questions. You may be one of them that's old. You can give direction of what you want. Julia's last week shows... Uh, showed less and less of an interest in eating, so we didn't force her. I must say that when we got her Panera's uh, broccoli and cheddar soup, she wolfed that down. Uh, Other senses, though, as she stopped eating, other senses of sight and hearing became more acute, much like fasting. She seemed to be more aware. She was aware that there were beings in the room other than the beings that we saw. She was very confident of that. Um, she, as time went on, she didn't even want to drink, but she wanted her mouth rinsed out and she wanted her lips wet. When the hospice nurse came in three days before her death, The hospice nurse asked my mother-in-law how she was doing, and Julia said, Oh, Pam, how are you feeling today? Because this woman had had breast uh, cancer and was a breast cancer survivor. Pam, Pam helped us to understand that to increase the pain meds helped us get a better blood pressure kept uh, Julia's heart from racing, took the edge off of her dying, and gave her more freedom to communicate. 
It was a wonderful time. It was a difficult time. If Julia would have lived to the 13th of this month, she'd have been 93. Now she lives eternally. The day of one's death, that's you, that's me. We need to think about it. What do we want it to look like for the honor and glory of Christ, for the witness we want to be to our own family, and to, as it were, shape our own homegoing? We don't address this enough, and I hope this is a help to you today. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for the scriptures that have much more to say about this than we've talked about today. But just as we cover these things, we pray that you would help us to see that we can have a good death and die with a good name that brings you honor and praise. And for that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.